Hello, and welcome to SG Squared. Steve Bladen, Global Small Groups Pastor at Saddleback Church, pulls from his 20-plus years of small group ministry experience to encourage and equip listeners to lead more effective small group ministry. Sit back, learn, and enjoy SG Squared with Steve Gladen. Welcome to SG Squared, Steve Gladen on Small Groups. Thank you so much for tuning in. Derek here along with your other host, The Big Cheese, the man who is a cheese connoisseur himself, Saddleback Church's Connections Pastor, Steve Gladen. Steve, how are you? Hey, everybody. It's great to be with you. And uh, spring is in the air, and we are excited about what God is going to do at this timing of this filming we got easter coming up so it's exciting to to see what's happening with that and we're coming off a campaign so it's uh we're in, we're in a we feel we're in a good spot so how about you my brother to me it's crazy that easter is almost here i want to hear what your weather forecast is there steve because here in the northwest where i am at pacific northwest it's like still full-blown uh, winter. We just had snow this morning here in the Seattle area, and it was like 35 degrees. What about you? Uh, uh, time's up by two, and we're we're, we're even. So you make me sorry, sick. my brother. So <laughs> so cow. Yeah, so Easter is on the horizon, and um, before we move on to the main focus of the show, I gotta ask. Uh, you, Steve, uh, you've been doing small groups for over 25 years now, and congratulations. You just celebrated 25 years on staff at Saddleback. How did that feel? Thank you very much, sir. It makes me feel old. So, <laughs> so you, looking forward to 30. Looking forward to 30. There you go. So you've had some Easter celebrations with your small group. Is there a yeah. top tip or a couple things you want to share about um Stuff you've seen that worked real well with your small group during the Easter season? Yeah, I mean, a uh, uh, great question. I mean, there's the the, the rudimentary one where our, our group actually uh, goes out to dinner before the Good Friday service, and we'll go to the Good Friday service and sit together, which kind of gets us, uh, you know, in that zone. Easter, we usually have families in, or we've got people we've invited to church that we're sitting with, so... Um, but the Good Friday service has kind of been a little bit of a tradition for us. And because at Saddleback, we have three Good Friday services. You know, it starts on Thursday when our group meets. So it's kind of like a perfect time to, to get together and have a meal and then go to that. Uh, but I'd say a couple things. One on the fun side, uh, we our small group used to do an egg hunt for uh, the kids in our small group. Uh, which was always fun because you, you get enough of the adults there, you get plenty of kids, and and you can really you know just spoil them and let them have some fun with that. So having your group even do little uh, you know those little things that the community can do. Obviously, you want to go to the community events or you want to do the community events at your church so that you can pull people in. Uh, but that was always a special one when we do it you know solo together. I think uh, probably the one I love the most is we have a two-week curriculum on how to do a Passover and you actually do the Passover meal together uh, as a small group and um, pastors.com has that uh, available but it's a great two-week study that um, Pastor Tom Holiday does it and knows all the meanings behind it and it's, it's just really a, a great thing for your small group to do because you you not only get to experience it 
but you get to uh, understand all the meanings behind all the pieces of what happened during the Passover. So those would be uh, some of the top ones I can kind of rattle off the, the top of my head right now. Those are great uh, ideas and thoughts. I know over the years, uh, my small groups have uh, shared in a Passover meal as well, and that's always just a really special mm. time, you know, adding some worship, some communion, and it makes for a really great time. So, well, it sure does help when you're a worship leader. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. you know that's a that's a little ace in the hole. Most of us common folk, us common folk, don't have. <laughs> you can always make that joyful noise, right? <laughs> it's not joyful. I'm sure it is to God, but it's not to each other. Well, you make a great joyful noise. Uh, if you want to hear Steve sing, go to our Instagram account. And uh, on one of our reels in the last year, I caught Steve on camera singing, and it was pretty epic. Yeah, that was. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that one. So. <laughs> well, moving along, our big uh, yeah. topic of the day is how big can a small group get? I love this title, Steve. Mm. And this is one of the more popular questions that seems to pop up in the small group metaverse or small group universe. Yeah. Um, I guess my first question is, there you go. Why does this topic often come up? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a mixture of, uh, we, we know, uh, from sociologists and many studies of what a good size group dynamic should be. But then we're always trying to pair that with what happens when a group expands from that. Uh, sociologists uh, have done studies where they'll say that that great ratio to get the, the right interaction with people and conversation is seven people. Uh, I mean, it's eight people. Uh, the United States Air Force did one and said it was seven people. Uh, I know we always struggle for a biblical example. Uh, and I guess you go, Jesus had 12, but he lost one. So maybe 11 is the right number with that. But I, I think a lot of it is, is groups go through these tension points. When the group gets larger, people feel alienated. And, you know, so I, I think it's trying to figure out you know, how do we develop true community uh, that goes deep and robust? But what do we do with that tension when we have people that are keep coming to our group and it, it wants to grow to 20, 30 or 40? So I think it's just the, the natural parts of life. Some groups don't have that tension at all uh, because they, they, for whatever reason, they don't gather as many people. So I, I think it's just a natural part of, you know, where some groups are at and other groups aren't. And then they, the churches, unfortunately, sometimes they, they lean into being the small group police and, you know, kind of beat you up on, on different things. Like you can't do that. You can't do that. When I think there's a better solution that we'll talk a little bit later on in the show. Good analysis there initially. Um, when it comes to the topic of how big can a small group get, are there any hints in Scripture that uh, we can find that kind of go go deeper into this number? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously the, the Bible is not explicitly clear. Like, it doesn't say how big a small group should get. It, there's just nowhere in Scripture that it talks about when it's talking about house to house. There's no inferences of you know the number of people there or anything like that. But what's interesting is, is that we can look at the byproducts that Scripture talks about. 
in Exodus 18 when uh, when Jethro came to Moses and said, "Hey, in order to to deal with this many people and to in order to handle folks, you got to break them into smaller groups." And and he talked about you know there's and it's a great leadership development tool too, which we'll talk about that in the uh, in the benefits. But the the important thing to remember here is that. You know, he instructed Moses, there's leaders of tens and some over 50 and some over 100 and some over 1,000. But what's clear is in Exodus, what was uh, that was stated in that is it says, and all the people's needs were met. And so in order for needs to be met, people have to be able to share what they are. And so, and again, this is, you know, we're, we're pulling through part of what people worry about and churches worry about. If groups get too big, conversations aren't happening and, and, and needs aren't being discovered yet. We see that in the Bible that when you when you break it down, which could give you, a, you know, a, an instance in Bible of a number per se, you know, with Moses, it was 10. So maybe 10 is the right number. Uh, but you'll, you'll see that, you know, there's that. And then in the New Testament, in Acts 2.42 through 47, it talks about they gave to everybody as they had, in, they gave to everybody in need, or as people had needs. And so the only way to find out needs is being able to say, okay, then, then there has to be a, a forum for those needs to bubble up so you, they, they can be met. Some needs are obvious. You know, somebody dies or someone's sick, and, you know, those needs can be taken care of. But, but literally throughout the book of Acts, it's clear that the church's needs and the people's needs were being taken care of. So biblically speaking, I, I think you can, you can point to the fact that, you know, it doesn't say how big a small group should get, but it does say that people's needs should be met. So now that's where the tension comes in that we talked about. Why does this bubble up all the time is because a lot of times, you know, you know groups, will, groups will grow and you just don't know what's going on and what's going to happen. So it's, um, it's you know, to and fro in the, the parts of the Bible. you got to look more of, you know, what, what's the outcome piece. I've heard you say before, um, you know, some, some small group leaders are just natural gatherers, right? Mm-hmm. And you hinted at, you know, sometimes the church, unfortunately, or the small group pastor can become like this policeman, Groups can't get this big, and so, and we get that, but it's like you can cap growth, you can cap something amazing God's doing by using somebody's gifting and someone's leadership. Yeah. And so, um, maybe address that a little bit if you've got that natural gatherer, uh, and then what are some solutions uh, to this this topic of when a group gets too big? What are your top solutions for this? Yeah, and a good point, uh, because what you're talking about is what drives the question is that there are some small group leaders that they'll gather two couples or three people or, you know, a handful of people and stuff like that. And the, the situation, this question never comes up of how big a group can get. But there are people in your church that are natural gatherers. And what happens in these situations is they just can bring people together. They bring a lot of people together. And sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 30. We actually have some groups at Saddleback that are 40 plus. And when you when you look at those types of numbers, you're like going, how in the world does conversation and how does how does anything happen? So so 
part of it is is that you, you, you can punish the gatherers and say, I'm sorry, you can't gather more than 12, or you can play to their gifting and you can use subgrouping. And when I'm talking about uh, subgrouping is what you're trying to do is when you gather, you want to be able to break down the units into uh, smaller components. So let's say you have 15 or 20 people at your house. Um, you want to be able to, or wherever you're gathering for your group, the, the solution that we would lean towards more than being the small group police and saying, hey, it can't happen, so your group has to multiply. And remind me on that, because I'll come back to that in a second, Derek. But, um, but what you're saying is, is that when you try to come in and, and group, get your group to multiply, Oftentimes in uh, very um, metropolitan cities or very well-developed countries, that flies in the face when you try to, to force the group to break up. And, but on the, on the flip side of that, what you want to see is, is that in the solution versus being the small group police, as you move to subgrouping, you can almost think of this three-part. You start together you subgroup during, which means you break up into, into smaller groups so that people can talk and discuss, and then you can close the group together. Now, there's many strategies on when to subgroup. The most common one is when people, uh, are, after the, the lesson has been presented or after the video has been watched, you can subgroup right after that point. So you can subgroup for discussion, and that helps bring the big group, no matter how big it is, it brings it back to kind of what studies have shown between seven and eight people being able to discuss, or maybe four people discussing, depending, you know, where you're at. Like if your group's around the size of 12 to 14, you're on that bridge of not everyone getting to talk. And so you may want to go into groups of four, not, you know, two groups of seven, uh, because you can give more, you can give more people. The smaller the smaller you get the subgroupings, the more quality time they'll get to discuss and, and, and work together. So you want to be able to, discussion might be one zone. You can do the same thing at prayer time. So maybe you don't come together to close your group, but you break down in subgroups to be able to uh, get actually people praying together so that, you know, the needs can be met. So at the prayer time can be another one. And uh, another strategic area to do subgrouping in your group is to do it uh, in, the, in the front side. And what I mean by that is sometimes your group just meets for fellowship and you could do a guy's night out or a girl's night out. And this worked great for our small group when the kids were younger because when the guys went out, the, the ladies uh, watched the, the kids and when the, when the ladies went out, the guys watched the kids. And so it's just a, a great opportunity. So the, the solution that we would really encourage you, and it can go a lot deeper, but part of what we'd encourage in the solution is being able to say, instead of being the small group police, make sure that, you know, you lean into the giftedness of the gatherer and help them go down. One of the things we teach in our uh, leader training one is that, if everybody in the group can't talk, you haven't accomplished one of the fundamental issues that you've got to in a small group because everyone needs to be able to talk and everyone needs to be able to share. And when they're doing that, 
their needs will bubble up and that's where you can start to be the body of, of Christ like we're supposed to be and you can take care of the needs. Well stated there about uh, subgrouping, Steve. I totally concur with you on uh, the importance of that when the group's getting too big. I've seen in several groups I've been a part of over the years where you're in a group that's it's gotten big. You know, it's we're talking mm-hmm. 12 plus, 15, 20. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the leader does not understand subgrouping. And so what happens is, you know, just this frustration where usually the fellowship time's great, right? You're eating food, you're talking, that's all cool. But when you get to the discussion and the prayer, it just, it's death by small group. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, it takes an hour just to hear a prayer request in a giant circle, right? Yeah. And you that's, get- that, I mean, that, that's a great practical point right there because it's just, you know, and then it's just, you're right. <laughs> I love your, your line, death by small group. So subgrouping is absolutely key, and usually that involves having maybe um, kind of a, an assistant leader you've raised up to help you go take this portion in the other room or whatever. But Steve, what are some benefits to um, this whole topic of how big can a small group get? Yeah, I, I mean, so there's a number of benefits. One, it, it's like subgrouping is something you don't have to do every week. It's kind of like the spice uh, now, if your group is super large, then you're going to have to do it every week or people aren't going to talk. But the beautiful thing is I would even encourage it in groups of, you know, seven or eight or nine. I would still encourage you to use subgrouping every once in a while because uh, because when you subgroup, the idea to get the most benefit is you want to subgroup by genders, And when you subgroup by genders, what happens is the women go deeper and the men go deeper. Um, I've been in our group, you know, a couple decades. And even though we've, we've had lots of time with each other and lots of things, there are still things that the ladies want to share with other ladies and the things that guys want to share. So one of your greatest benefits is, is, is that, you know, you utilize subgrouping, uh, you know, like I said, unless you're in a larger group, but you can use it like a spice. You can sprinkle it in here and there. You don't have to do it every week, but you know, you can you can float it around. Another thing that that is a benefit is that you get the people on your side, because you know a lot of churches use the solution when you have a natural gatherer there is that they have to break up the group, and what you find out from sociologists is that. As, as over the decades, since the 1970s, the family unit has eroded away, what happens is, is that people are growing up more and more in broken families and displaced families. Uh, one of the, the stats I like to go through is that there's two primary and three secondary. There's two primary things that have destroyed our family culture. One of them is divorce uh, and every, you know, across the United States. It has, you know, it's uh, just under 50%. It's like a 48% divorce rate uh, inside for us in Orange County. Uh, it's as high as 72%. So it's a big deal for us because people come from fractured homes. And it's important for you to understand these statistics because it'll help you know your people and what you may be inadvertently doing when you're trying to force groups to multiply. 
Another thing, and this is a, a seven-year-old stat, but I can almost guarantee you it's up and to the right, and that is uh, in 2014, there's a stat that was done that showed that uh, 57% of children, 18 and younger, grow up in a blended family. And whenever you have a blended family, you have two family systems that are coming together, sometimes competing, sometimes fighting and things like that. And so there's that awkwardness there. And those are the two primary things that have eroded away the family culture. Three uh, things on the side, but still equally important, is uh, higher education. Uh, Both my kids are examples of that. They've moved uh, out of state to go to college. And if they meet somebody there in college, strong chance they'll they'll settle down somewhere outside our home because they've met them out of state. And if they're out of state, then you just never know where they're going to land up. Um, corporate America uh, is always transferring people around, so that kind of displaces the family unit. Uh, and so they, they may not get the stability and the grounding that they need. Uh, the military system does the same thing. I grew up in a military home. Uh, fortunately for me, I was at the tail end of my dad's 23-year career. And so, um, you know, I, I had one move. But, you know, in, a, in an average military family, you're moving lots of times in corporate America and that. Every time those, those uh, secondary things happen is it disrupts the family system and their mojo. And so what happens is, is that, you know, one of the biggest benefits is that you understand what what they're coming from. And uh, a lot of people, when they get into a small group, you'll hear this comment over and over again, that this group is closer than, than my blood. And I, I went down this hill trying to get groups to multiply. And I'm not saying multiplication strategy, rapid cell multiplication isn't a bad strategy. But what I would say is understand your culture. And the more the family system is destroyed in the culture, the more rapid cell multiplication is only going to hurt, not help your people grow holistically as a disciple and follower of Jesus. And so part of what you want to look at is understanding how all those all those things uh, play into it. Because when they get together, and we learned this, like I said, through focus groups of trying to find out why groups wouldn't multiply that phrase came up all the time because they said, this group is closer than our family. So if the group is, you know, if they're bonding together, then you got to ask yourself the question, you know, multiplication is usually, you know, to get groups to, to birth. And that can be a whole nother episode that we talk about on churchwide campaigns and how we handle that. But when we have our groups together, we're always saying, you know, uh, in order for us to deal with multiplication, we do a church-wide campaign. This is a total separate subject, but it's sidelined if you want to look that those uh, podcasts up. But the other thing, too, is we keep personal evangelism super high in the group as a strategy. But how that affects what we're talking about, how group the, big the group can get, most churches lean into that because they want your group to multiply. And so you can have more groups and more groups can have more groups and so on and so on. But what I'm saying is culture and the family system, because it's eroded, that strategy could work against you in some strong ways. So one of the great benefits of subgrouping is it puts the ball in the group's court. 
So not only one of the benefits is its subgrouping can be a spice, but the other thing is, is that, you know, it, it can be a, a piece right there where the, where the group is understanding and you're, you're letting the group drive the process, not, not you drive the process. Because in some communities, it's just impractical. Parking's a problem and other things are, and the group will come up with that solution that you can talk to them about. And that's where we, we kind of seep that strategy into our church-wide campaign with groups that are, that are large. But the, the more important thing, and I would say this is the primary benefit uh, of the other two I've mentioned, is that you, when you subgroup correctly, you can develop leaders and you can disciple genders. And let me tackle each one of those. When you're talking about developing leaders, what you want to be able to do in the subgroups is uh, the natural person, other than, you know, I was going to use Derek as an example, but, you know, he's not the average player in a church. But the average person in your church, if you went up to them and said, hey, could you lead a group? And what would, would they say, yes or no? Probably more times than not, you're going to hear a no before you hear a yes. Matter of fact, yes would be probably very, you know, way down the list of them because they would say no because they're thinking, hey, I, I don't have the skills. I, I don't know what I'm getting involved in. I don't know what I'm, when I can get out of this. I don't know the Bible as well as you think I do. And so you're going to hear a no with that. But in subgrouping, you can train your group leaders that have these larger groups or even, you know, those groups that are 12, 15, 18, to be able to say, hey, just give, type out a sentence that they can discuss and give it to them on the spur of the moment and say, hey, we're going to subgroup. So if Derek and I were in a men's group together, we could very easily say, you know, I'd type out something on, on a list and I'd say, hey, Derek, um, just spur of the moment. Could I give you this one sentence? Could, could we break the guys up? And could you talk to them for um, just about five to seven to eight minutes just to get him into a crawl step of what it's like to lead? Because a good leader does discussions. Well, I can move beyond the sentence and I can move to a section of the study where this I would give Derek a little bit more advanced notice, but I'd say, hey, I'd like you to lead a section. It's, it's just like a sentence, but it's just a little bit longer. And most times when they are successful just doing one sentence and having a discussion and pulling back together really quick, then you can subgroup for a little bit longer in your group because Derek can handle two or three questions and feel okay with it. To the point where eventually, over time, Derek will be able to be able to lead the study if I need him to, and his first one would always be with me. So that's kind of the example of how one of the biggest benefits of subgrouping is you are raising a leadership factory. Before you're worried about your groups being too big, I would be much, much more concerned with can they raise leaders out of that? It doesn't matter if they meet in the, in the same home. They're, they're, you're raising a leader who can do the second part, which is disciple people. And when I said up top that, you know, one of the best ways to subgroup and not always, not always the easiest way, but one of the best ways is, is that you can subgroup by genders. And when you subgroup by genders, the beautiful thing is, is that you can learn to uh, give them discipleship tools so they can talk 
deeper as a gender and discipleship can happen better. We always say at Saddleback, the best men's and women's groups come out of a couple or a singles group doing subgrouping because we want that circle to be tighter and tighter and tighter. Because if I'm a guy and I'm in a men's group and I'm a guy and I'm in a couples group, I can be two different people. But if my couples group is subgrouping as guys and we're together, then it's harder for me to be a different person because they, they know me and they, they've, they've seen the different pieces and they've probably heard Lisa say a few things about me. So uh, with that, but um, so, so in discipling genders, what you want to do is sociologists will tell us that within the first 90 seconds, we kind of know who we want to be with and who we want to meet in a room. So as you subgroup to say, hey, this, this particular group time, we're gonna uh, we're gonna subgroup by by genders, and I just want you to break up into groups of three or four. So you, you at the at the start of it, you just want to mix it up. You just want to say, hey, you know, go together and do that. After a while, you're gonna start to see certain people hanging together more. And so the second phase of discipling genders is you want to start to merge people together, and that is you want them to be able to say. Hey, they, when you say we're breaking up as subgroups, they know who they're breaking up with. They not breaking up as a relationship, but but gathering together with, uh, with that sounded bad, uh, but who they're gathering together with, because the third phase of that is you want to move them into a deeper relationship with who Christ is, and whatever your discipleship model is, that's where you want to start to train these leaders who are leading your subgroups on how to take them and move them to a deeper relationship with Jesus. So the real benefits, Derek, that was a a long answer to a very quick question. You're probably not going to ask any more questions, but is that it can be a spice. It can can mix things up. It can make the group feel a little different from week to week when when you subgroup. And that's a powerful piece that we've talked before on other episodes, is that you want to do different things in your small group so that no week to week interaction is ever looking the same. The The second one right there is, is that it gets the group leader working for you, not resisting you when you're talking about the greater good of trying to reach more people for Jesus. And the third thing, which I think is the probably the greatest benefit, uh, Derek, is you get to raise leaders intentionally. You get to disciple people and disciple genders intentionally. And the exciting thing is, is that your small groups become the leadership and discipleship factory that you want. So, I mean, I can't think of a better benefit from that. Instead of battling over how big the group should get, die on the hill of, are they raising leaders? And one of the things we always say is we want to manage off ratios. We don't want to manage off numbers. So what we mean by that is we don't care how big the group gets, three to 33 or 303 if you're that good, Uh, but um, we don't care how big the group gets, but we do care about the ratios that you're developing inside your group. So when you're doing a group health check, you want to make sure you're saying, you know, are people getting ample ways to discuss? And if so, how are you doing it? Hopefully you hear the subgrouping piece. And so subgrouping is probably the, the greatest advocate to help you get to where you want to go to uh, when your groups get too big. Wow. What an episode. I've really enjoyed this. 
uh, packed full of Steve Gladen nuggets and wisdom. We've covered some Easter tips and ideas. We've covered how big can small groups get. We've uh, dived into this uh, topic of, well, some of the challenges of rapid cell multiplication and then mm -hmm. the importance of subgrouping. And and I, just, I love how you broke down there, Steve, how you can really minister to the different genders in that. So, well done. Great episode. And um, mm -hmm. any closing thoughts that you want to share for our beloved audience? Yeah. Well, I mean, the big thing is on how big a group can get, just if I can just, you know, bring just another little bow to this is, is we, we are in the disciple making business. And the only way that's going to happen and the only way things that are happening in Acts 2, 42 through 47 are going to happen is if you get people into that those segments where they can where they can brush up against of saying, uh, you know, not not only how am I going to make a disciple, but how does it apply to my life? And that's where the real stuff happens. So I encourage you guys uh, focus on the right thing and don't worry about the size, but worry about what's being produced and then how simple tools like subgrouping can help you get to that intended destination. Well said. Well, thank you everybody for spending a part of your day with us. We hope this episode uh, encouraged you as always. We hope hope that it equipped you to better lead your small group ministry. Uh, and until next time, keep uh, growing and uh, keep leading those small groups. And we'll see you next time. See you later, everybody. Thank you for listening to Steve Gladen on Small Groups. If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you want to learn more, make sure you check out smallgroupnetwork.com for more resources.